the optimal life? Yeah, so I'm I'm uh in in Albuquerque. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's where I work. I'm a I'm a physician there. So you're in your mid thirties now. Yes. You're actually on the closer side. You're you're actually closer to forty than you are thirty, correct? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um you went to school to become a doctor and you ultimately did become a doctor. What uh, area of practice? What did you specialize? What have you been specializing in? So I went to, I went to residency in New Mexico to become a urologist. And that's, that's what I've been practicing in for the past three or four years now. Exactly. What does a urologist do? So a urologist, the way I describe it is we're kind of like surgical cyborgs, you know, we, we work with lasers and robots um, you know, we'll use lasers to break up kidney stones. We'll use robots to take out cancerous prostates. But we also have this this sort of uh, like a little more tongue in cheek side to our practice. Uh, you know, we do a lot of male um, health and things like that. So, you know, uh, so sort of that aspect of medicine as well. So it's a, it's a little more it's kind of it's kind of we're kind of like the renaissance men of of medicine we sort of do it all lots of lots of surgery lots of medicine lots of men's health and we're and it's it's kind of a a specialty in surgery what was the hardest thing about law uh, uh medical school of all the things you had to endure what was the most painful part uh i think the most painful part was uh, was was sort of all of the the the, the testing you know it's and, and it kind of more more so the standardized testing because a lot of those things it seemed like at the time sort of controlled your your earning potential so if you if you had a bad day that might you know that might have uh, ripples you know down the road and so i think that was the most stressful part you know i think i think um it's just a lot different, you know, you have to, you have to treat medical school as a job, you know, and, and, and put in your, your eight to 12 hours a day of, of, of studying, you know, you can't just wing it and, uh, and stay up the night before, like you did in, in college. Right. Are the students helpful? Like, are your peers helpful? Do you guys want to see each other succeed or is it so competitive that it's every man for themselves? Yeah, I think we had I think we had these these sort of friend groups or, or cliques, and and I think we you know genuinely wanted to see each other uh, succeed. But I think on the whole, it was fairly cutthroat, and you ha- and you have what you call your your gunners, which are you know like the people that are always up at the front of the class, um, you know, trying to get the best grade possible, etc. Hmm. Yeah, I see. I went to law school, and I guess it was kind of similar because you do have your study groups, you have your people that you start trying to help each other out you go to the library together you maybe meet off campus for uh, uh evenings or weekends trying to push each other but at the end of it because of that bell curve that we were under it's almost like you wanted to help each other but then it, it all became like every man for himself once it, it once it was time to take the test right yeah exactly or resident residency i would say is a much different um culture you know it was more like we're you know we're all all of the fellow residents were all kind of, you know, soldiers in the, in the trench, you know, and you, and you definitely want to see each other succeed, you know, because a weak link, you know, means that you all kind of suffer. So it was a, the culture totally shifted once, you know, once we started getting into that more practice-based approach to our medical careers. Interesting. Yeah. So you're going about your business, you're in your mid thirties, uh, 
after your residency how old how old are you after your residency like 32 already yeah you're, you're you know you're most people are around 32 33 so i was you know i was let's see when when all of this happened i was i was about you know three years out from from residency practicing on my own right so you're out on, in the you're finally out you're practicing on your own you're in your mid 30s and then all of a sudden you have this life changing event take us back to that date, what happened exactly? Yeah, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a morning like any other morning. Uh, you know, I was, I woke up, you know, I was getting ready to get out of bed to go, to go do my, my uh, morning uh, evacuation of, of urine, right? And, <laughs> and uh, I stepped out of bed and just, and just tumbled to the, the floor like a ton of bricks. Um, you know, instantly the room was just spinning. Um, you know, I was seeing double started feeling very nauseated, started throwing up. And I was, you know, I was just in shock. Like what, what could possibly be going on right now? So what did you do? So, yeah, I, I, um, you know, my, uh, my wife, she was, she was then my, my fiance at the time, but, um, you know, she was, she, you know, I could just see the look on her face. Like this is, this is something, you know, terribly serious. And in my mind that, you know, I, I, you know, denial is a pretty powerful thing. So I just said, you know, this, this has to be some kind of like an inner ear problem, you know, um, you know, maybe an inner ear infection, maybe, maybe the, the crystals in my inner ear uh, dislodged or something like that. And I was, you know, I was just terribly dizzy and, and, and nauseated. Uh, and so, yeah, I tried, you know, I tried to sleep it off for a little bit and just see what, you know, what would come of it. And, um, you know, my wife, meanwhile, was saying, no, you, you definitely need to go to the emergency department. And I said, oh, come, you know, what are they going to tell me? Right. Uh, <laughs> and so I, uh, I tried to tough it out for a little while, but uh, nothing was getting better. So she then drove me to the emergency department where, um, you know, they kind of tried the same thing that I tried in the morning. And then ultimately the, the ER doctor said, do you want a CT scan? And I said, sure you know, not, not very enthusiastically, but, um, they got a CT scan and it turns out I had a massive cerebellar stroke. Mm. So let me see if I understand this. You wake up to go start getting your day ready. You're about to go to work. And as you're getting out of bed, you completely just fall to the floor. Mm -hmm. You lose all kind of, did you go unconscious? What happens when you fall to the floor? Um, I mean, nothing. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't go unconscious, but the room was, you know, the room was uh, spinning and, uh, and I was just, I was just having double vision. So you think that, and then you just attributed it to maybe something's wrong with your ear and then like your equilibrium was off. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because, you know, I'm kind of in my mind, I'm sort of running through the differentials of a, you know, a 35 year old healthy guy that, you know, was probably running 20 to 30 miles a week, going to the gym and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm like, there's no way I could have had a stroke. <laughs> so you actually thought that to yourself, like there's like the, the, the term stroke was actually in your mind, but you dismissed it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I, I said, there's, there's no way, you know, stroke strokes happen to people in their, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, who, who smoke and have high blood pressure and everything else. I said this, you know, it can't be a stroke. So did you have trouble speaking then after this happened? I didn't. So, you know, but it, because of, yeah, you normally think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a urologist. I'm not a, I'm not a neurologist. So, you know, when I think of stroke, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like anybody else thinking, well, are you having, you know, um, 
you know, unilateral, you know, numbness or, or, or difficulty moving your limbs? Are you having slurred speech? You know, is your face drooping? I didn't have any of those things. So I, I you know, I, right. None, you didn't have any paralysis in your limbs. No, not I'm looking at, all. at some of the signs and symptoms of a stroke, trouble speaking, paralysis of the limbs, maybe problems seeing headache, anything like that. I guess I had a, you know, a fairly, fairly mild headache at the time, you know, it pro- progressively got worse, but at the time it wasn't terrible. So yeah, it was a very atypical presentation. So you get off the floor and your wife, you, you sitting there and you just try to lay back down in bed for a while. Yeah, I took a I took a meclizine thinking that it was like an inner ear issue. You know, that's kind of like a first line therapy for that. And that's, you know, it's kind of an over the counter drug for motion sickness and things like that. So I tried that and, and, you know, tried to go back to sleep for a little bit. I definitely didn't sleep. I, you know, I just started throwing up a lot more. So you have the uh, you had a stroke where the brain's blood vessels were blocked, right? Mm-hmm. Causing the. Uh, reduce blood flow. Right. And so what, what happened, it was a, a vertebral artery dissection. So that's, it's kind of like a, a fairly tenuous vessel that runs up actually through the, the upper spine and, um, and goes into your, your brain to, um, you know, feed a lot of the, the, the backside of the brain, um, like the cerebellum, which is, you know, responsible for balance and fine motor control and things like that. Some vision components, and so that the, the internal lining of that vessel sheared kind of like a, you know, if you, if, if like the, you know, the, the inner tube in a, in a bike tire, you know, sheared or something like that, you know? And, and so what that does is it just creates a lot of turbulent blood flow and then, and then it starts forming clots and then those clots, you know, start going up to, you know, important parts of your your brain. And so, and then, you know, so it just blocks it. And then, then that, that area doesn't get oxygen. It doesn't get nutrients. And, and that's how the so-called ischemic stroke starts. And so as that ischemic stroke uh, factors, as those factors you mentioned are, are building up and are brewing, is that over the course of days, weeks, months, hours? Uh, what, what is it? So I, I think, I think it's pretty, it's pretty quick. You know, I think it's, um, you know, generally they tell people like, you know, you, you gotta have this, you gotta try to come to the ER within this, this, you know, this sort of magical six hour window, you know, cause that's, that's sort of like the time it takes for that tissue to start dying. And, um, and that's where, that's when they, within that window, they can normally give you, um, these anti-blood clot medications like uh, TPA and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, but leading leading up to the stroke, leading up to the event where you actually do fall to the floor, were you feeling anything in the prior days before that? Yeah, so in um, so I started, you know, uh, you know, I kind of, once this happened, I started doing a lot of a lot of research, and I, you know, in hindsight, I guess I was having a lot of neck pain, um, but you know, it, it wasn't any different than the neck pain that I always have. You know, being a surgeon, you're always hunched over an operating table. You know, so we, you know, we get a lot of neck pain, shoulder pain and stuff like that. And so it, it didn't feel any different. Um, so I just, I just kind of chalked it up to, yeah, it's, you know, it's just from, just from long hours in the operating room. Okay. So there was something that may have been a red potential red flag, but for you, it just felt too similar to kind of the way you typically felt. So 
Exactly. You weren't alarmed by it. Are there other red flags uh, through your research, through your own experience, that if somebody's feeling a certain way that, you know, not necessarily go rush and think that you're having a stroke, but are there kind of warning signs in the days prior? You know, as, as far as like, as far as I could tell, I, uh, you know, that there aren't many, you know, they're, they're like this situation, like how, you know, how could you really tell that it was different than just having like a, you know, a strained muscle in your neck? I, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't think you can. Um, so I don't think there's, there's really a whole lot of warning with, with some of these things other than kind of saying your doctor telling you, Hey, your blood pressure's like 200 over a hundred. That's really bad. We need, you know, we need to get this down so you don't have a stroke, you know? Um, mm. So I don't think, you know, there really aren't a whole, a whole lot of red flags. Right. So you go to get the CT scan and then they determine fairly quickly that you had a stroke. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, so now what, what ends up happening over the next days and weeks? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's in that, in that initial moment, you know, it's just complete and total disbelief. No way this, this can't be happening to me. You know, I'm, I'm a surgeon, I'm 35. What, what the hell is going on here? Um, and so they, they ultimately took me over to the only hospital in the state that really handled, um, you know, stroke care and had on-call neurosurgeons and things like that. And so, you know, they got me into the ICU, they monitored me, and then things started going, you know, pretty well south. I, um, the problem with generally, you know, of, of young people when, um, well, I mean, I guess anyone, but, but more so young people is our brains tend to take up more space in the skull than, than say an older person where, the, you know, the brain ultimately kind of withers away over time. But, um, but yeah, so the problem with that is, is, you know, it's like a, you know, a brain that's, that's swelling as a result of all the inflammation from the stroke, but it has no place to go because the skull is a fixed um, volume. And so, so that creates a lot of issues and, uh, you know, it does, it does wild things to, um, you know, your, your, your body, like it slows your heart rate down. It makes your blood pressure go up. You, you, you know, you start having breathing abnormalities and um and so they had to they initially tried to decompress all of the pressure in my skull by by you know as i explained it to my friend they stuck a a straw in my coconut um you know they basically drilled a, a tiny hole in my in my head while i was awake and and turned me into a capri sun for a little while and <laughs> and so but that that ultimately didn't work it didn't take enough pressure off so then they had to rushed me to the operating room and cut out a piece of my skull in the, in the back of, in the back of my skull. And, uh, that worked for about 24 hours. And, and as they were taking me down to another CT scan, my heart rate dropped to like, you know, the twenties or thirties, um, couldn't breathe. My blood pressure started going crazy and, and they had to push, uh, you know, atropine, on me, you know, like the, like the one that, uh, Nicholas Cage puts in his, in his, in his heart and the rock, you know, they were giving me, they were giving me atropine to bring my heart rate up. And then they, they rushed me again to the operating room and they had to, um, you know, cut out a piece of my brain. So I don't, you know, I don't have a full brain anymore. You know, I'm not, I'm not playing with a full deck. And so, uh, so when they're know, cutting they, those pieces out, Bevan, why are they, why exactly are they doing that? So what, there's what, just, 
they're what just in the way. Yeah. Um, just, just pressure, you know, like, like, like inflammation, fluid, all the, you know, all these things that, that sort of expand and, uh, and create pressure within the skull. They were, they were simply just trying to, to make room in my, in my skull for, for my swollen brain basically. And so they, they, you know, the first step was just kind of decompress it, take some of the pressure off, you know, that didn't work. So the, the next step was, uh, you know, actually remove, you know, some of the, the volume in there. And, and what they removed was, was basically the, the, the dead part of my brain that, that just hadn't received, uh, you know, oxygen and nutrients and things like that. So, you know, they actually, they removed the area where the stroke happened. So were you at risk? I assume everybody is in some fashion, but were you at risk? And if so, how much were you at risk? If you know of your brain being jeopardized or at risk of being diminished in such a severe way that, that you wouldn't be able to really function ever properly again? Were you in that kind of risk? Yeah, it was, it was a very high risk situation. So, you know, there was, there was a, a real risk that I would die. Um, um, you know, ma- mainly from the, all the, the cardiovascular abnormalities that occurred from that, you know, there's a, a big risk that I could be brain dead, a big risk that, you know, even with, with the surgery going well and everything like that, losing a lot of major, you know, operating system functions of my brain. And, um, so yeah, the, the stakes were, were, were very, very high. Um, and afterwards they put me on a, a ventilator. Um, this was, this was during the height of the COVID pandemic and everything. So, um, I honestly believe that if I would have had COVID at one of the, one of those, you know, certain points that I, I definitely would have died, uh, while I was on the ventilator, you know, ventilators are pretty, well known to to create a lot of secondary infections like pneumonias and i got you know basically the, the michael jordan of bacteria growing in my lungs while i was on the the ventilator and that almost killed me that's that's that was about a you know it's about a 40% risk of of just death so um you know, but yeah, they, they ultimately had to cut a hole in my trachea and, and put the uh, the ventilator directly into my trachea because the ventilator had been in so long. And uh, it was so a this big goes deal. Back, this goes back, Bevan, to 2020? Yes. Yeah. So the stroke happened December 3rd of 2020, and I was in the hospital for around 52 days. So you that day that you went in for the t- CT scan, you never ended up coming home? Exactly. Yeah. Not, not, not for uh, not for a couple months. I mean, at least, at least for those 50 days. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're going about your business. I'm trying to understand how devastating this must've been emotionally for you and your fiance. Um, I assume that's what she was or your girlfriend or at, whatever. At she time, is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're going about your life practicing medicine. And then all of a sudden one day you fall down to the floor you guys don't know what's going on. You kind of think maybe your equilibrium's off. It wasn't anything that was that alarming to you in that brief, in that period of that moment, that morning, you go in for a CT scan. They tell you, you have a stroke. We got to get you looked at. We need to get you into a hospital room. You need to ultimately now have this emergency surgery. Um, and you're just there. So as this is all going on around you, uh, take us back to those days and those weeks. I mean, 
what was the emotional state like for you? How, how are you comprehending everything? How are you digesting everything? You know, I think, I think, uh, you know, de- denial is a pretty powerful tool uh, that our, our brain, you know, our, our sort of poorly evolved brains kind of uh, tell us, you know, in order to protect ourselves. And so, you know, I think the first few days I was just saying, this is not, you know, this is not happening. This is a bad dream type thing. And I remember, you know, the, the, the first day that I, I woke up in the hospital you know, I, I would, I would kind of take these, these cat naps in the morning and just hope to wake up and, 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 and think this was, this was all a dream, but uh, yeah, it was very tough emotionally, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I wouldn't say I'm like a, you know, very, very connected to, to some of my emotions, like, like grief and, and, and sadness, you know, you know, being, you know, more or less, you know, hardened and, and residency and, and practice uh, having to deal with these situations all the time. But, but I, I bawled my eyes out the, 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 you know, first day I woke up in the hospital and, and what, what did it for me was, was when um, my, you know, my, my compatriots, like my, my fellow, you know, residents and, and doctors and people that I'd known in that hospital and trained with, um, you know, had come up to visit me, you know, I just, I just couldn't, couldn't control myself you know it was um it was just really they sad. would walk into the room bevan and it's somebody that you had a, a bond with they'd come walking in maybe you didn't expect them maybe you did and just seeing them triggered oh my gosh you just lost your your it was a a, a lot of emotions absolutely yeah it was it was a, a really tough thing um but i think do you feel like those were being triggered because of your scared you must have been scared. Like, am I going to wake up today? Am I going to wake up tomorrow? Yeah, that, that would get back to real life with these people. Exactly. Yeah, you know, there were people that were important to me, and and um, you know, I just was was wondering if I would ever get back to being on, on their level again. You know, mm. um, that had to be so scary and so frustrating. Absolutely. Who is, I mean, I assume your wife was instrumental in the support that you were experiencing over those weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She, she definitely is. So she's a, she's a physician as well. And so she, she, she speaks doctor and uh, you know, was, was able to help a ton in the, in the decision-making that was going on regarding my care. And so, you know, she was, she was a, an amazing source of, of support the hard thing about the the whole ordeal is that it was happening in the in the height of the COVID pandemic, and so I, I you know, I, I couldn't have visitors. My my wife, you know, couldn't even come in to see me. All the all the units were closed, and um, oh my god! And pretty pretty quickly, they you know that they you know some of the the staff kind of figured out that that these uh, you know my my fellow urology compatriots that were coming in. Uh, you know, worked in the hospital and, and they, and they, they sort of shut that down and I, you know, and, and it pissed me off a little bit, but you know, honestly, I kind of, I kind of think, well, you know, I think they were just trying to keep me from getting COVID honestly. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm ultimately thankful for that. Sure. So you're there laying there after these, how many surgeries did you have in that span of 52 days? Three, three surgeries. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess four, if you include the tracheostomy, the the tube that they put directly into my throat, but three surgeries on the, on the brain. Yes. So after each surgery, you don't have any real family support there. 
it's in the height of COVID. People are scared of their own shadows. Yeah. Um, what are you doing? What are those days like in recovery? Are you just laying around all day? Because I'm picturing you in your bed, just staring at the wall all day. Yeah. So for the, for the, I'd say the lion's share of that first 26 days when I was in the ICU, um, I was sedated most of the time. So, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't remember a lot of that. And, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad, uh, <laughs> you know, I was, I was sedated and kind of living in this, this sort of alternate, you know, dream world, I guess you could say, which, which was like, uh, extremely vivid and, and strange and, and no way related to my, you know, my, my current reality. Um, and then, you know, they eventually they transferred me to a, a step down hospital, you know, where, I, where I would try to begin, you know, learning how to, you know, eat on my own and, um, uh, you know, move around, walk and do those kinds of things. And, and by the time I had made it to that, uh, facility, I had lost about 41 pounds and I, I wasn't a fat guy to begin with. <laughs> wow. So you lost 41 pounds. Um, and okay, but that was the first 26 days. The first half was very blurry. You don't remember much of it. Do you remember, were you communicating with your family members via phone or is it still hard to even remember that? Very little. And, um, you know, with, with, uh, the nature of my stroke, you know, the, the double vision was, was very, very, very bad. And so I, you know, I, tr I basically just closed my eyes most of the time. So I wouldn't get, you know, dizzy and nauseated. They, uh, they put an eye patch on me at one point uh, to help with the double vision. And it, it did help, but you know, the, um, my vision was impaired because of the stroke. And so I couldn't read text messages. So it was very difficult to communicate. And um, are you know, your parents in your life? Yes, yes, they, they are. And um, you know, I did try to communicate with them the best that I could, um, but it was, it was that still had to be devastating for them. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I think they were, uh, you know, they were pretty upset by the whole thing. Uh, sure. Because now they're like, as my, they don't, they, it's bad enough that your son has a stroke. Now your yeah. son has a stroke, but there's no real easy way to communicate with him. And the doors are locked to the outside world because of COVID. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, even if, even if they could somehow, you know, see me or communicate, with me remotely, I mean, there'd still be, you know, a lot lost in the, in the nonverbal communication aspect and things like that. So in the 26 days, then there, the second half of the 52 day stint, once you kind of were up and moving around, what were those like? The, were you still kind of just, when you weren't moving around, were you just sitting in a hospital room by your lonesome for the most part of the day? Yeah, pretty, pretty much, you know, I was trying to keep myself occupied doing, doing, um, you know, physical therapy exercises and things like that, things that I could do in bed, but it was really tough, you know, cause I'm, I'm a big reader. I like to, you know, I like to read, but, and I, and I couldn't read, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my vision was so bad. Did you feel noticeably different besides your vision? What else were you experiencing? Were you experiencing other issues with your brain where you knew like, Hey man, I'm definitely not operating at full hundred percent functionality. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I remember the, the first time they tried to get me to walk, you know, I looked like a, like a POW, you know, I was, I was just skinny and frail. And, you know, after, after laying in a bed for, you know, a month, 
Um, I couldn't, I couldn't even walk, you know, I had, I had to have basically full support, someone holding me up, trying to get me to walk. And I think the first time I, I walked, I went maybe 50 feet and it was, it was difficult. You know, you, you know, when the a cerebellar stroke, you don't have, you, you know, your balance is totally off. You just, you just don't have any, any sense of balance. And, um, yeah, it was super difficult. You know, I didn't, I don't, and you know, I don't have a, you know, like fine motor control of, of my left hand. And that, you know, that was super, I couldn't even hold a, a cell phone to, to make a call initially, wow. you know, Jeez, that's a shocking turn of events. Oh yeah. To be in your mid thirties, getting ready to, for the holiday season. And then all of a sudden your life is just completely flipped upside down to the ultimate level. Oh yeah. Did, did you have memory loss during those weeks? What, did you start forgetting things? Did, you couldn't remember what had happened in your past. Uh, no, not nothing like that. I, I could pretty well remember everything. I remember, um, you know, my dad had called into the step down hospital and, uh, you know, one of the health technicians answered the phone. He was a, a Spanish speaking guy, a really nice guy from, from Venezuela. And he, 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 my dad told him, you know, well, you know, talk to Bevan in Spanish. Um, you know, he needs, he, he kind of, cause I, I speak Spanish pretty well, you know, I'm from Texas originally. And, and, uh, he, he kind of said, uh, you know, um, try speaking to him in Spanish, you know, it may be a really good, um, you know, therapy exercise for him. And so the guy started speaking to me in Spanish every day and, and, uh, you know, we, we carried on like, like it wasn't any problem. So I still remembered that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So um, those weeks that you were in the hospital, especially the second half, again, where you were more functional, but it was still quiet and lonely. Um, do you start, did, did your relationship with God change at all? Um, so I, I would say no, um, like initially, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, I've been, I've been seeing a therapist and, uh, you know, we kind of talked about, uh, schemas and sort of these, these things that, that, you know, you develop and, and things that define you. And she kind of said, you know, you scored really high in the, in the grandiosity scale. And I said, uh, that's, that's preposterous, you know, like that's, that's not true at all. I'm not, I, you know, I, I drive the same old piece of crap car that I drove in, in residency, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, I work really hard for my patients. I'm not grandiose. Like, are you implying that I'm narcissistic? Come on. And I, I told her, I go, I'm the most self-aware person you've ever met. And she said, she said, you know, do you, do you see what you just did right there? You said you were the most. And I said, uh, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Well maybe, maybe you're onto something. Right. And so, um, she, you know, you hear you hear a lot about about surgeons um, having sort of a, a god complex, and there's there's a joke that says, um, you know, it's like, you know, the only difference between God and a surgeon, and it's it's God knows he's not a surgeon, right? And and so like, so uh, so yeah, I, you know, I I thought no way, no way in hell, I'm 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 like one of those people, you know, I'm I'm you know, I work really hard for my patients and this and that, and then I kind of thought, well. You know, like over, over the years, you know, I, I have kind of lost touch with, with, um, you know, spirituality. I have, um, I have sort of disconnected from friends and family to some degree because of just the long hours I was working and things like that. And in my mind, I was thinking, you know, I see upwards of, you know, 50 patients a day. Um, 
you know, I'm, ha I'm, I'm having human connection and, uh, and it's really, it's really kind of like a simulation, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's no different in some ways than just, than just scrolling on, you know, Facebook or Instagram all day. It's like, and you're, it's kind of like a false sense of connection. And I think it, I think it appeases our, you know, brain that hasn't really evolved in, in 200,000 years. And, but it doesn't really appease, you know, the, the soul. And so I think what I've learned, especially after writing, writing the book and kind of, um, you know, doing things like therapy and other things is that there, there really is no substitute for, you know, connection, community, family, fellowship, um, you know, having, having some kind of, you know, being in touch with, with your higher power and things like that. And so, um, so yeah, um, I've, it's definitely changed a lot, but it, it wasn't it wasn't immediate, you know, just just from an unfortunate circumstance. Right, and you mentioned the book, The Stroke Artist, yeah, uh, which is the the book that you have uh, written and published. Uh, talk a little bit about what exactly is the Stroke Artist. How did you come up with the name first of all, and then what is the book all about? Yeah, so the the name the name I just kind of uh, came up with it was just sort of uh, you know it's more like a kind of a a tongue in cheek kind of a jab at myself, you know, is, is like, you know, if you think about like a, a choke artist, you know, it's like someone that, that almost gets there, you know, is almost about to, you know, make the winning shot or, uh, you know, uh, you know, get to that, that, uh, happily ever after and then, and then fall short. So, mm. you know, I kind of, I kind of related that to my situation. Um, but the, you know, also the, the artist part of it is that I, you know, during COVID, I started um, palette knife painting. Like it was, it was kind of my new my new hobby, and um, you know, I, I did it constantly. For some reason, I was just really obsessed with it. You know, I, I, I painted a lot when I was a kid, but um, you know, I, I wanted to try something new that wasn't so tedious, and and so I, I started doing that. And then eventually, some of the paintings actually got good enough to be sold, and so I, I you know, I kind of started this this little small business that. Um, you know, selling, selling paintings. And, uh, you know, I, I would say initially, you know, I was selling enough paintings to pay for supplies, but it, you know, it was, it was fueling my, um, my hobby and something I love doing. And so when I was in recovery, we, my wife and I went to, um, Dallas, um, to do a, like a stroke neuro rehab program for, you know, about six weeks. And, um, every day I would come home and, and paint because at the time, you know, I, I felt like I had no purpose, you know, no job. Like I, you know, I, like I had no validation. And so I, I painted and, and I sold some of the paintings and, you know, it was, it felt really validating and, uh, and good. And it was something I loved doing. And uh, while I was doing that, I started writing this book and the book initially was just kind of a rehab exercise. It was like my, my, colleague who is a urologist I told him some of these stories about you know getting catheterized and almost dying and all this stuff like that and you know he, he said you know he started laughing and he said you know you should really write some of these things down and I said uh, I don't really want to you know I don't really want to remember any of this stuff and he said no do it you'll 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 think yourself later you know so I said I said I'll do it but uh, I'll do it because I really need to teach my left hand how to type again you know it's a big part of my job and um, you know I I started writing this book and as I started getting into it, you know, the, the book kind of took on a life of its own. And I thought, you know, I may be able to reach a lot of people with this message, you know, like stroke survivors, families of stroke survivors. Um, you know, I may, you know, give them some perspective of what it's like, um, you know, for someone going through it and someone that knows how to translate, 
you know, all of this, this medical jargon, you know? And so, and so that's, that's, it really kind of started taking on a life of its own and just, uh, you know, then, you know, by the, by about halfway through, I was, I was really invested in this thing and, 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 uh, really got into it. So the book acts as a resource almost for anybody that, uh, uh, may have been subject to a stroke or maybe know somebody that has been. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, you know, in, in, in my recovery, I did a lot of, you know, once I could finally see again, I, you know, I, I, I started doing a lot of reading and there are a lot of, um, you know, stroke recovery books out there. And, and some of them, I think the ones where um, a quote unquote, you know, doctor has had um, some experience with stroke. It seems like for some reason, a lot of them are, are PhDs, like neuroscientists. So they're not, they're not really as, as boots on the ground as, you know, as you would say, as like, uh, as maybe someone like me, who's, you know, who's actually operating, seeing patients and, and kind of, you know, practicing medicine. And so um, I think, I think the perspective is, is uh, a little bit different, a little bit more unique. And, and I really, I really try to focus on, on translating and kind of demystifying a lot of this, this medical jargon, you know, that, that's uh, that seems to be kind of cloak and dagger for, for uh, you know, just, just the average person going in with a stroke. Right. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And we'll make sure that we link this here in the show notes. You mentioned, the God complex. Most doctors have this thing of some sorts and they maybe get a little, their egos maybe get a little bit hyperinflated um, at times. So now that you've gone through this life altering, humbling experience, I mean, what has this done to you emotionally, mentally, spiritually? Yeah. So I kind of look at it, look at it in kind of a, of a, like a reductive approach where I, where I say, you know, Imagine, um, imagine if, if the biggest thing in life that, that, you know, sort of defines you, you know, was just all of a sudden taken away, like, you know, what would you be? Would you be a great family man? Would you be a great friend, a husband, you know, a man of God, a pillar to a community? What would, you know, what would you be? And, and if I look back, you know, I say, man, I was nothing, you know, I put, I put all my eggs in, in one basket, you know, and, um, uh, and I did that, you know, with the intention that thinking, yeah, I'm a good guy, you know, I devote my life to patients, you know, but uh, in reality, I was letting a lot of these things that are that are truly important, you know, go to pot, like, uh, you know, friends and families, you know, those, 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 those people are irreplaceable, you know, I, I, uh, I joined um, stroke support communities. Uh, and none of that stuff is, is hokey, you know, it's, it's, it has real value and just being able to share experience with, with someone else that has a similar experience is just invaluable. And so, so yeah, I, I kind of think now, okay, you know, I have, I have the next half of my life to live. Do I want to live it, you know, trying to, to fly too close to the sun or do I want to live it, you know, trying to, to, you know, really develop myself, you know, and really develop my relationships with other people. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm choosing the latter. That's beautiful. It's amazing how sometimes quite often a negative experience in life can really lead to some remarkable things down the road. Right. It's, 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 I think it's just the way we are as humans. It's easy to take our lives for granted when things are going well, it's nobody's fault. It doesn't make any of us bad people. I just think that that's the way we're wired. 
And then all of a sudden you have this life-threatening situation and um, 50 days by yourself in a, in a hospital <laughs> that really will put life into perspective very quickly. Absolutely. Let me ask you um, getting, so you get home late January, early February, I take it of 2021. Um, and what were you doing then to start getting yourself back on track? We know about the, the rehab and therapy, but were, were there other things, lifestyle things that allow you to start getting back on track even more quickly? Um, yeah. So I think, um, you know, I think finding, uh, reaching out and finding, um, you know, like stroke support groups and things like that, going to, going to therapy, uh, you know, all these things that in my mind, like, you know, previously I had thought, you know, I'm, I don't need that, you know, like I, I know, um, you know, I, I know all the, the ins and outs of, of stroke recovery and, you know, I, I know all this stuff because of my, my, my background and my training, but there's, there's, there's a lot of intangibles with, with something, you know, so, so major like this. And, um, you know, one of those is, is, is having support and, um, and being able to share your experiences with others. And it's kind of like, um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like you can, you can be the most educated person in the world, but if you don't, do anything with that, then, then what are you, you know, what are you to other people? And uh, so it's kind of like, you know, like biblically, it's like faith without works is dead. Or if you, you know, if you say like education without practice is pointless, you know, that's, that's kind of the same thing. So, you know, it's, it's like, I was, I knew what I had to do. I just wasn't doing it. And I, and, and, and so I, you know, it's, it's kind of like putting things into practice. And so, you know, you actually have to show up to those meetings, you know, you have to, um, you know, tr you know, do things outside of your comfort zone and, um, you know, you have to just shut up and listen every, every now and again. <laughs> right. I'm just curious. How do they know that you're ready? How do they know you're ready after 52 days? Okay. We got him through it. He's functional. We can get him back home, back to society again. What, what litmus test did they put you through? It's, you know, I, I talked a lot about, about, de, you know, demystifying uh, medicine. It's, 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 there are certain litmus tests and, and people can, people can really, you know, attach the incredible monikers to those. But, um, you know, really it's like, are you eating? Are you peeing? Are you pooping? Are you walking? Are you, you know, are you it's drinking? Common, it's common sense. Just yeah. feel interactions yeah exactly it's like are you doing normal human things okay good um you know right. can you take care of yourself or can someone else take care of you okay good see you later and yeah uh, interesting yeah sometimes yeah. we we want to make it so scientific and complicated but right. it doesn't have to be <laughs> yeah yeah they're like oh your swallow evaluation that was a funny situation they uh you know the swallow evaluation is, is just like it's like it sounds you know that they, they just basically see if you can swallow things they start with liquids and then they go to thicker things like like maybe yogurt and then foods and just make sure you don't choke <laughs> and so you know while they while they did this i had a nasogastric tube in it was just a tube that was you know going into my um just beyond my stomach that was feeding me for you know a month but um but uh, you know i being a doctor i knew i knew what that what the swallow evaluation entailed, you know, I'd, I'd done many of them and removed tubes and things like that. So, um, as soon as I passed and I knew it, I yanked the tube out and threw it on the floor. And the guy was like, why'd you do that? 
you know, I said, I said, I passed. <laughs> he was, he was pretty pissed, but <laughs> you're like, I don't yeah. need the assistance here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, this is re- remarkable stuff. So I'm just curious, are you now back practicing again? So I'm, I'm practicing in a, in a clinical setting. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the clinic, like I can, I can see patients in the, in the same capacity that I did before in a clinical setting. I just, I just can't really operate in the operating room yet. That's, that's, you know, kind of an evolving process and, and they're trying to figure out how to, you know, test me or supervise me in order to get, get to doing that again. I mean, I'm, I'm doing some small procedures in the, in the clinic that are, you know, you know, relatively easy and, and appropriate for me, but, um, these are because yeah. of your physical motor skills. Is that why they're not sure? Yeah, it's, 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 it's my left side. My, you know, I, I just don't, I really lack the fine motor skills with my left hand. And um, they're, they're, you know, it's just, it's like, I can make, I can make the big gross motor movements. I just can't do the really fine motor movements. Like, you know, picking, picking a dime up off of a flat table. That's, that's kind of difficult for me. Um, wow. And so, you know, those are, those are the things that people are kind of going, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so we'll see what the future holds, but, but, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to be upset about it. You know, I'm, I'm just not, you know, resentments are kind of no longer my thing. Yeah, though, this is, uh, this is really fascinating stuff and I'm really happy you reached out and we were able to have this conversation. Uh, I'm curious, how did you also, I'm also curious, how did you um, come across my podcast? Um, so, you know, I was, I was looking for, um, you know, you know, podcasts that kind of dealt with um, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of like, uh, you know, personal growth um, and, um, you know, kind of self-starter, you know, like a little bit, of, a little bit of entrepreneurship, a little bit of like, uh, you know, recovering after a, a totally life-changing event. And I'm really, you know, I'm really interested in those, those types of podcasts because it's, it just fascinates me what, what people do, you know, with their lives, like all the, all the changes that they, they make, how they respond to adversity and, um, and, you know, like kind of the, the, the neuroscience, the psychology and all, you know, all of that behind it. And, and so when, uh, you know, when I, when I started listening to, to your podcast, I, I, I kind of said, you know, this is, this, you know, this is, this is really like, uh, you know, kind of the stuff I'm interested in nowadays. Right. How did you come across it? Do you remember where you found it first? Um, no, I think I just, I just started doing general searches for, you know, like, like kind of, uh, you know, motivational slash inspirational, you know, podcasts. And then I would, and then I would kind of start reading the, um, you know, the synopses and, and, and start listening to, you know, blurbs of, of different podcasts. And when I, when I found yours, I was, I was kind of uh, like, yeah, yeah, this is exactly what I was kind of looking for. Hey, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Just curious. Cause there's so many different ways to discover podcasts these days. So, um, but no, that's, that's very neat. Um, I know we mentioned the book. We'll link you up in the show notes. We'll link the book up in the show notes. So anyone wants to purchase Bevan's book, you can click on the link. You can get it there. Um, anywhere else you'd like people to find you online? Um, so you can, you can find me at, uh, on Instagram. I'm it's at Bevan Choate, all one word. Um, I have a, uh, kind of hobbled together website right now called, uh, it's just the stroke artist.myshopify.com. And, um, and, and my book is on Amazon. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. Well, listen, 
we are wishing you continued success, continued uh, recovery. I'm sure the journey has not been easy, but I think it's been, it sounds like it's been uh, life-changing in, of course, some challenging ways, but also in some maybe beautiful, inspirational ways as well. So thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps, wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.